Lenny. Hi, Nancy. Welcome to episode 62 of the Front Porch Book Club. The Front Porch Book Club is a podcast that meets twice a month. We like to dig deep into the relationship between characters and the worlds they live in. Grab your book and iced tea and join us on the Front Porch. Lenny. Today, we interview Dr. Jennifer Bain. She's a professor of musicology and gender and women's studies at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. We invited Jennifer, as she invited us to call her, to join us on the front porch to discuss Hildegard of Bingen. In our September book, The Rabbit Hutch by Tess Gunty, the protagonist, Blondine Watkins, is obsessed with Hildegard and relies on her writings to help her make decisions about life. We wanted to learn more about Hildegard, and Jennifer was the editor of and contributor to the Cambridge Companion to Hildegard of Bingen, published by Cambridge University Press, so we knew she would be able to help us learn more. And boy, did she, Nance. She is knowledgeable. (laughs) Jennifer's research interests are wide-ranging including medieval music theory, chants, 19th and 20th century reception of Hildegard of Bingen, as well as issues surrounding the role of women in the production and composition of music. This lady is well-read. She is knee-deep into this, and she shows incredible insight into the rabbit hutch and an area that I didn't know anything about. Nancy, it's just amazing. And she was super fun to talk to. Yeah. (laughs) Knowledgeable. My goodness. Yeah. All right. Let's get to it then. Well, welcome, Jennifer, to the front porch. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, we're delighted to hear about this Hildegard. I said in our last podcast, I didn't know what she was talking about the entire (laughs) book. I didn't even know if it was a fictitious person or not. I had no clue what this was about. (laughs) But before we get started on Hildegard, we'd like to know a little bit about you. How did you become interested in Hildegard and also musicology and gender and women's studies? That's a wide range, I'm thinking. Definitely. I did an undergraduate degree in music. I loved music. I played the piano. And so I wanted to pursue music in university. And during the course of my undergraduate degree, I was only ever introduced to one woman composer. Wow. I only heard the music of a single woman composer through my entire undergraduate degree. When I finished my degree, I took a year off. I was traveling around Europe and I was thinking about what I wanted to do. And I applied to do a master's degree in a bunch of places. My area was music theory specifically, but I wanted to work on the music of women. That became the thing I really wanted to do. So when I started my degree, there was a research methods class. This is sort of a standard class that you take, but you could build it around the single topic that you were interested in. And so I thought, okay, so all of the assignments I did related to the topic of women composers. 
after about the first week of doing some research, I realized that this was actually a huge field. And, and although I hadn't been exposed to it as an undergraduate, there was actually a ton of scholarship. And there were lots of women composers historically. I knew about some contemporary composers, but I didn't know about the historical ones, except those who were like married to famous male composers. So Clara Schumann, wife yeah. of Robert Schumann, and Fanny Mendelssohn, sister of Felix. So I started just with this broad topic. And then I realized, oh, I'm going to have to narrow it down. So I decided to narrow it down to women composers before 1900. And then that was too big. And then I narrowed it down to women composers before 1800. And then I narrowed it down to these four composers. And one of those four was Hildegard of Bingen. And then I finally narrowed it down just to her. There was a lot written about her. And so it sort of became obvious that this was a really interesting figure as well as a composer. And so that was what really got me interested. I did a lot of work during my master's degree on Hildegard of Bingen. My thesis was on her music. I focused in on five of her antiphons and, and wrote this analytical thesis on those works and decided I wanted to keep going, working on medieval music and working on Hildegard. In my PhD, I quickly decided, well, maybe I shouldn't do my dissertation on Hildegard. I should do something else. I was a little bit worried about the reception of Hildegard in academia at that point. And so I didn't want my topic to be something that would keep me from being able to pursue a career. So I worked on Guillaume de Machaut, who's a 14th century French composer and a very solid kind of figure to work on uh, in repertory. <laughs> and it was interesting music, and I really enjoyed that. But I kept coming back to Hildegard, defended my dissertation proposal, and then I immediately worked on a Hildegard project and then got down to the dissertation. And once I got my job at Dalhousie, I started publishing things out of my dissertation, which is a standard thing to do. But then I started working on some of these other Hildegard projects. And I was really interested in the reception of Hildegard as a composer and how we think about her in that way and when she first became known as a composer. And that drove a lot of my research at that point. I think I answered your question, but... I believe that you did. <laughs> I've learned a lot. I had no idea she was even a composer. Oh, okay. I, I thought she was more of a, you know, I was actually, I just, I wasn't sure who she was. I didn't even know she was a real person. So that was very interesting to me. <laughs> no, I wish I would have known that reading the book, because quite honestly, I skimmed over some sections because I had no idea what she was talking about. Yeah, so she was a really interesting figure and very prolific, which is why I found so much about her when I started doing my research into women composers. A lot of what I was finding about her wasn't just about her music. It was about her writing. She was a mystic. She wrote these three large books of visions that are also referred to as theological work. Uh, there's theology in them, but it's based on these visions that she has that she describes and then unpacks in these three collections of, of her visions. But she also had this interest in the natural world. There are these other writings that deal with the natural world, you know, talk about the properties of elements and rocks and 
other things, and also on medicinal uses of plants and stones, gems. I mean, there are all sorts of medical applications that she describes. Yeah, and she's known as the mother of German botany or something. Yeah, yeah. So what's actually interesting is that in Germany in the 1950s, there was a doctor there who really got into Hildegard medicine and opened a clinic. And so Hildegard medicine has been practiced in Germany since the 1950s. And the modern Hildegard Abbey in Germany actually produces these products that you can purchase. Wow. Yeah. They also make wine and other spirits. <laughs> and a whole other kind of medicine. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I had no idea. I do remember now that you're saying this about components of the book where she does talk about religion and earth and all of this other again I just kind of glazed over that whole section of the book because I didn't understand this was a real person doing all of this with your work at the university now you have a cross appointment in musicology and in gender women's studies how is that all married together yeah there are a number of interdisciplinary multidisciplinary programs at Dalhousie particularly in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. And so Gender and Women's Studies is one of those programs. So there's actually, it's not a department, it's a program. And so the idea is that it brings people from all of these different departments. So from the English department, the history department, the sociology and social anthropology, other language departments, and people who are doing work in gender and women's studies within those other disciplines all contribute to this gender and women's studies program. So my primary teaching was in the music department, which merged with the theater department uh, in 2014. So we have this school of performing arts. And my primary teaching there is a lot of it is music theory courses. I do a little bit of courses in cultural history and medieval music because that's my area. And sometimes that intersects with things to do with gendered women's studies. So I have offered seminars, for instance, on the music of Hildegard of Bingen. And so then that will be cross-listed with gender and women's studies. And I've also taught a course, sort of a more general course on women in music or gender women in music. And so that's been my contribution to that area. So who was the woman composer who you learned about as an undergraduate, the one woman composer? It was Laurie Anderson. <laughs> oh. Yeah. She's kind of a crossover artist in that sense because she's alternative pop music or contemporary music. Yeah. But she's kind of an avant-garde composer as well and is really interested in electronic. She's still performing, still producing. Yeah. So, so I shouldn't be talking about her in the past. <laughs> yeah, I had a class on 20th century analysis of music post 1945, I think it was. And in that class, Oh, Superman was the song <laughs> that we listened to and talked about and analyzed. Wow. She was the one woman who made the cut. <laughs> the one woman who made the cut in four years. Yes. Wow. Yeah. All right. So Nancy and I did visit Halifax on a cruise. Oh, yes. 
We have lots of cruise ships coming in. It was our parents' 50th wedding anniversary that we were celebrating on that cruise. And we did visit the Maritime Museum of the Atlantic. Yeah. I always tell people to go there. Yeah. It was so interesting. And they had the exhibit about the Halifax explosion, where a French cargo ship ran into a Norwegian vessel and the French cargo ship was filled with explosives. It exploded and the explosion in the fire killed 1,781 Halifaxers. I do not remember this from the cruise. I actually looked up that number yeah. <laughs> and injured about 9,000 others. And then the museum also has a permanent exhibit on Titanic since the yeah. bodies of the people who did not survive the sinking were taken to Halifax. That's right. Yeah. People from Halifax are called Haligonians. So there's oh. a, a new word for you. <laughs> that is great. <laughs> yeah. And those are the two exhibits that I always tell people to look at because I think they are, I think they're really well done and they're really interesting. And yeah, the Halifax explosion is like every year on the anniversary, it's commemorated in, in Halifax. It is a really big deal here. It certainly had a big impact on the city. The issue about the the bodies from the Titanic, but also from the Halifax explosion, uh, what I found really interesting was the story about, I can't remember the name of the man, but who was like the coroner or an undertaker or something who set up this process for recovery and identification of bodies following a catastrophic event like that. The place where the bodies were taken is the basement of a school on Shabukta Road, which is just like a five minute walk from my house. And it's the current location of the Maritime Conservatory of the Performing Arts. And there's wow. actually a little recital hall in there. So I've been in that building many, many, many times, but I never want to go into the basement. It seems like a creepy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't blame you there. <laughs> yeah, and there is actually a connection with Boston because every year Halifax sends a Christmas tree to Boston because all of these doctors and nurses came from Boston to help in both of those situations. But I think particularly in the explosion, they came up to help take care of the survivors. Wow. Yeah. So every year, Nova Scotia sends a Christmas tree to Boston as a thank you. I love that. Yeah. That's beautiful. And I had a neighbor, a very elderly woman who has now passed on. But when I first moved to Halifax, who was a survivor of the explosion, she was a little girl and she was in the bath. And when the explosion happened and all of the windows in the city exploded and she had a scar above her eye that was from glass hitting her. She was very lucky she didn't lose an eye. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I love that. So let's talk about the rabbit hutch. So this is Tess Gunty's 2022 National Book Award-winning novel. In it, the protagonist, Blondine, is fascinated by, as well as skeptical of mystics, and especially Hildegard of Bingen, who is her favorite saint. And Gunty writes that Blondine is fascinated with Hildegard, quote, because she is about a hundred people in one body, Hildegard of Bingen, prophet, composer, botanist, abbess, theologian, 
doctor, preacher, philosopher, writer, saint, doctor of the church, a veritable polymath. She didn't ask anyone's permission to be these things, to be everything. She just did it. She was always writing letters to male members of the clergy, telling them to get their act together. They weren't blowing the trumpet of God's justice was the problem. So that's Blondine's take. And we talked about this a little bit, but can you give us a sense of all of those elements of who she was and why so many people still find her fascinating today? So there's one little thing that I would correct from Blondine's perspective, which is just about her not having to get permission, because she did have to get permission, first of all, from the abbot. So originally, when she entered the church, entered the monastery, it was at a place called Dizzy Bodenberg, and she was enclosed in a essentially a cell, is how it's described, that was attached to this male monastic house. And so she had to seek permission to continue to write once she started and had to seek approval from authorities in the church to keep writing. And then when she left Dizzy Bodenberg and took her nuns and and established a new place at Rupertsberg, she did also require permission and support to be able to do that. She couldn't just completely do her own thing. But certainly, (laughs) I think the appeal of Hildegard for people today is that it seems so unlikely. Basically, anything before 1900 in terms of what women's rights have been and opportunities, it just seems so unlikely that you could have this person who who could do so much during that time period that she was able to actually pursue all of these different activities. And she has been popularized in some circles, even though Linny hadn't heard of her before. <laughs> no big um, surprise there. This is way outside of what I do every day. <laughs> sure. But there is the new age movement in the U.S. has really appropriated Hildegard. So if you were really involved in the new age movement, you probably would have read about her. There's a, a writer called Matthew Fox, who's like an ex-priest who who has written a lot about Hildegard. Yeah. And so I think also this idea that somebody could be so knowledgeable and interested in both the natural world, but then also this very like serious academic writing and then having this direct connection to God. I mean, she's just really interesting uh, for people today to kind of contemplate somebody who could do all of those things and and do them all so successfully. So I'm curious, what do you think are the components that she had in her that she was able to do all of these things? Did she marry and have children? Was she single? How did she accomplish so much? (laughs) I'm just happy to grab a breakfast bar in the morning and get through my day. And other people feed me. I can't even imagine. What did she have in her that got her to this point? So she did not marry, right? Because she was a nun. And in the Middle Ages, not marrying had lots of advantages, right? You were probably going to live longer because there was no threat of dying in childbirth. Yeah. So there is that. I mean, I think she clearly had some inner strength and drive because she didn't have to 
do all of those things. It was enough to, to lead this community of women. And she was the leader of the community of women, even when she was at Dizzy Bodenberg, because that group of three people who entered in 1112 grew. People heard about these devout women and other women came and joined them. So there was a larger community of women uh, living there and she was leading them. And, you know, that would have been enough. But I think part of what she was interested in doing was thinking about training the nuns, actually, who she was in charge of. And that is a big part of what leading, like for an abbess or a prioress, that's part of what they need to do is that they're educating and leading and frankly thinking about the salvation of of the women in their charge. But she took things to a much further degree than most people. So I don't know exactly what drove her. She certainly gives all the credit to God, that God told her to do these things and told her to write and, and that the melodies came from God. And so that's where she attributed it. So Hildegard's background, she came from a noble family, didn't she? Yes. And so what would her education likely have been as a young noble woman? So she entered at Dizzy Bodenberg when she was 14. Wow. Which was that stage, like you could be married at 14. Yeah. So you were considered an adult. There are some biographical writings about her, some of which we think she wrote part of. But her parents, when she was quite young, four or five, promised her to a life in the church. So it's not such an unusual thing. Mm-hmm. Certainly they would have larger families and thinking about the way people inherited, they had to find places for their younger children to go to. Yeah. So with the daughters, either you would marry them off or you would find a place in a, in a convent for them. There seems to have been a, a relationship between Hildegard's family and then this family uh, of a young woman called Jutta, Jutta of Sponheim, who was a mentor for Hildegard and was eight years older. So when Hildegard was 14, she was 22. And so we think probably that Hildegard was placed in the home of Jutta um, and would have been kind of trained for the church with Jutta because Jutta was also very devout and didn't want to marry and wanted to go into the church. So her education would have happened there. Uh, Nuns and monks were generally trained to read Latin. That was Mm -hmm. the, the language of the liturgy and the primary book or tool that they would use is called the Psalter. It's basically the book of Psalms. Yeah. And the 150 psalms formed the basis of the liturgy. And they had like eight services every day. And so you would go through the psalms. All 150 psalms would be recited every week. Some of them were recited daily. So it was a core to the liturgy. You really needed to know the psalms. So that is what would be used to, to learn how to read and how to learn Latin. Did she pretty much go along the Catholic line? Or was she kind of out there with some of her ideas? Actually, theologians tend to think that she was fairly 
conservative in, in many ways in terms of her theological understanding. Um, her visions don't seem very conservative <laughs> at right. all, but the theology kind of undergirding them is. Okay. But she was very critical of the church. So she wasn't critical of theological ideas, but she was very critical of the church itself and the, the activities of the clergy. Now I'm learning a lot about this person. I didn't even know she was a nun. Linda, did what? you read the rabbit hutch? <laughs> like I said, Nancy, I, I, when I read it, I'm like, I don't know who she's talking about. And I don't understand what she's even saying. Like this stuff is, now I know it's written in the 1100 and some. Now I understand why I can't read it. I can't read stuff that was written a hundred years ago, you know? So, okay. So now I understand all of that. If somebody was interested in learning more about Hildegard, where would they start? It partly depends on how serious you want your reading to be. <laughs> so I can't help plugging the Cambridge Companion to Hildegard of Bingen. Yes. Okay. So if you want to do, you know, some serious grappling, it is intended for maybe upper undergraduates and, and graduate students. But if you want something that's a little lighter, uh, but would still give you a good sense of who Hildegard was and, and all the ways that she produced work and lived her life, there are two books that I would recommend. Um, one is by Fiona Maddox, and it was written probably about 15 years ago now. I can't remember exactly when it was written, but Fiona Maddox is a journalist, so it's written in a style that's easier to read than a serious academic book, but it's done very well and it's quite accurate and uh, highly readable. So I, I often recommend that. Um, also recommend it to students, like if they're doing a seminar with me on, on Hildegard, to get sort of a broad idea about her, start with that. There's another book that came out just a couple of years ago by Honey McConey, and it's in a series of books on composers. And so music is very much kind of the lens through which Hildegard's story is told. But she does cover a lot of uh, Hildegard's output. And so she's not just talking about music. She's talking about lots of things and talking about Hildegard's life uh, and movement, you know, from one place to another. And uh, so that, I think, is also really highly readable. So for starting, those two could be good places. If people like film, there is a movie called Vision, which is a, it's a feature film that was made in Germany, but you can watch it with English subtitles. There are certain parts of it which are maybe a little conflated, but it's quite well done. We'll put links to those resources in our show notes on our website if people are interested in that. Now, you mentioned the Cambridge Companion to Hildegard of Bingen. You are the editor of that volume. And these Cambridge Companions, there's such wonderful collections of writings and scholarship to introduce and explore key elements of uh, subjects. How did the Companion to Hildegard of Bingen come about? I published another book with Cambridge, and that was on this reception of Hildegard, and looks at the 19th century. What did people know about Hildegard in the 19th century? What did they think about her? People started to look at her music first in the 19th century, and 
Uh, so I kind of trace that movement and all the different players involved in trying to, in some cases, revive Hildegard and, and revive the commemoration of Hildegard actually as a saint. So she wasn't officially a saint, but she was locally known as a saint. And so uh, an editor at Cambridge uh, approached me to say, how would you like to do this? And at first I thought, "Ah, do I want to edit another collection? It's a lot of work. (laughs) But I did have some ideas about it. And so I thought, well, okay, I'll do it. So I, uh, yeah, put together a proposal and the board liked it. So, So then I went ahead and had to start inviting authors and pulling it together. It was an interesting project for me. I I have to say, working with scholars in other areas of expertise on Hildegard was really interesting. I got a lot out of it personally. And that was just recently published. Yes, 2021. Yeah. Wow. Good. We'll add an, a link to that as well in our show notes. So Blondine is obsessed with Hildegard and also other female saints, but she feels like their lives are basically selfish and she's not sure she even believes in God, even though she attends church occasionally. So Gunty writes of Blondine, quoting again, so how wonders Blondine Would a contemporary mystic challenge the plundering growth imperative if that were her goal? She'd have to break out of her solitude. There's no way to overthrow the system without going outside and making some eye contact. No matter how small your carbon footprint, you can't simply forego food and comfort and sex all your life and call yourself ethically self-sacrificial. In order for her life to be considered ethical, thinks Blondine, she must try to dismantle systemic injustice. And so then Blondine goes on to rain down fake blood, voodoo dolls, dirt, and small animal skeletons on a gathering celebrating the development of her town's last green space. Are there ways that Hildegard of Bingen did more than Blondine says? Did she dismantle any systems of injustice? That is a really good question, because I think one of the appeals of Hildegard is that for feminists today, we're looking for these historical figures who were early feminists. But a true feminist, in my mind, is somebody who does dismantle things for other people, right? I don't know if if that was even possible for her in the 12th century to do that. And so you don't really see her making space for other women. The way for her to have a voice was to keep reinforcing the idea that she was of the weaker sex. And so God chose her because she was weak, because of her positionality. And she doesn't ever say that women aren't (laughs) the weaker sex. But she kind of can't do that in that milieu. That is the understanding. On the other hand, a lot of the poetic texts of her compositions, she really focused on female figures. So she was really interested in Saint Ursula. She was interested in Mary. So in that sense, she was kind of promoting women in a way, uh, maybe in a, in a more subtle way. 
but by what she was choosing to look at. And she did mentor the women in her community, so that was certainly a contribution. There was another mystic from the same region called Elizabeth of Chanel, and she did correspond with Elizabeth. And it was Elizabeth, actually, who had written a lot about St. Ursula. She had visions about St. Ursula. And so I think Hildegard's focus on St. Ursula was partly from what Elizabeth had brought forward. I'm interested in learning a little bit about her music and the compositions. Were they all church music? Were they instruments? Were they vocals? What kind of style was popular back then? And what did she compose? That is a great question. So she wrote vocal music because she was writing for the liturgy. All the music she wrote was to be sung in these liturgical services. So it's all religious music. It was written in a style of music that we call chant. Often people use the term Gregorian chant. So if you've heard that phrase, that sort of style of music. So it's just a single line of music, right? There's no harmony added to it. At that point, the instruments in the 12th century weren't really used in a church setting. There were organs around at that point, but they weren't sort of the big organs that we think about that we see in churches today. So that would not have been a part of the way that the music was sung. So all of the music then had some kind of liturgical function. So she was writing music for the days of particular saints. So what we call a feast day. Um, So, and you know, lots of feast days. So, you know, St. Patrick's Day, right? That's a feast day. And Christmas is also a feast day. And Valentine's Day is also a feast day. So they're days that mark a specific point in the church calendar. So Christmas Day, it's the birth of Christ. If it's for a specific saint like Patrick or St. Valentine, those mark the death day when they're born into heaven. That's the idea. And so on those days, you would sing texts that celebrate that particular saint or that particular event. So the, the, the words in the texts will reflect something about the saint or about the event. So you, you can think about various Christmas hymns, probably something like, Unto us a child was born. Okay, so that's a Christmas Day hymn. Easter, he has risen. You sing that at Easter. You're not going to sing that on Valentine's Day. So the texts reflect the point in the church year. And so she wrote chants, as I said before, for St. Ursula, also for Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus. But then she also wrote for some local saints. So St. Dizibod, the place where she first entered Dizibodenberg, was named after St. Dizibod, and she wrote some chants for him. For St. Rupert, she was at Rupertsberg, so she wrote some chants for St. Rupert. She also had some chants for angels. So the style of her music was very much grounded in the style of music from that time and of uh, liturgical music, her pieces, they're often longer and they're the relationship between the text and the music. Um, She wasn't as concerned with structure as most other composers of music at that time 
were of liturgical music. So she wrote hymns. That was a genre of music at that time. And you'll know if you've ever sung a, a hymn or sort of a popular song that has multiple stanzas that are sung to the same musical line. Right. Hers never quite line up. Like one stanza will have 20 syllables and the next stanza could have 35 syllables. Like sometimes they're really quite widely varying. So that means that the melody has to be adjusted. So it's written out and, and it's adjusted. So it's a little more florid and sounds uh, sometimes a little more improvisational mm. than other music from that period. I love that idea of feast days commemorating when someone dies. It seems like the thing we do now is we post on social media, remembering the death of a loved one. But how about we just all sit down and have a big feast to commemorate loved ones who, <laughs> who have died? That's, that's like, what a great way to celebrate someone being born into heaven, right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think they had feasts on every feast day, but yes, but it is a lovely idea. And I do think about that too. When you're commemorating somebody in your own family and you're thinking about them on the day that they died, it would be lovely to, to do something, have a toast. and Yes, yeah, I like that. Yeah. What are you working on now? I'm working on a couple of things. So I'm doing a, another Hildegard project and oh. I'm working with another musicologist and with uh, a computer scientist actually. And so we've created a data set of all of Hildegard's melodies and we're doing some computational analysis of the melodies to look at how her melodies work in comparison to a data set of melodies from the time period sort of more generally to see if we can get at some really specific features that make her music her music and different mm -hmm. from the general repertory. And do you also expect to find some composers who influenced her as well? That's a little trickier, partly because a lot of this music is anonymous. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's a little harder to find. I did publish actually a couple of articles that talk about the music of Hermanus Contractus, who was a composer in the century before Hildegard. And there are some features of her music that um, are quite similar to his music. I think she may have been influenced directly by him, but I think also there was... Um, a kind of what we are now calling a late chant style. So that spends a little bit more time on certain intervals above the, the main pitch of the chant. Where do people find what you're working on? I would be really interested to hear what you find with samples of her work and then comparing them to other. Where do people get access? Is this online somewhere? That work is still ongoing, right? and we've given a couple of conference papers on it, and we're doing a conference paper in, in November on that, but we do plan to publish it, oh. so it should be available at some point. And my colleague, Kate Helson, she's at the University of Western in Ontario, and she's published a little bit on some of these computational analyses of chant. Is she the computer scientist then and not the musicologist? Or? No, she's the musicologist. And so, so there's a computer scientist, Mark Daly, who is also at Western, and uh, he's been working with us. Where's the best place for people to keep up to date with what you're working on? 
so one of my other projects is something called the Digital Analysis of Chant Transmission, or DACT. And one of the things we're doing is a fragment campaign. So if people have a manuscript fragment of chant that's hanging on their wall and they want to learn more about it, then they can contact us and send us a picture. And we are posting these with their permission on a site called Fragmentarium. What we do is we give you information about your fragment and then we post this and we do a, a catalog of all of the chant that's on the page in something called the Cantus database. It's like Antiques Roadshow yes. for Gregorian chants. Exactly. That's I love it. it. Yeah, yeah. We have a Twitter handle, which is DACTF for fragments. So on Twitter, we have stories about different fragments and, and send out a call. We also have a website. It's DACT dash chant.ca and there's a link on there that says submit a fragment so if you want to find out more about that you can look there oh my goodness that's amazing <laughs> i love it <laughs> i had no idea this is opening up a whole new world here for me <laughs> I <had> no idea <laughs> thank you for sharing your knowledge with us today on our front porch it's been very fun. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Nancy, I think I probably need to go back <laughs> and read this book again because I didn't read part of the book, to be honest. <laughs> I, I glazed over sections that had to do with Hildegard. I didn't understand it. I was confused by it. Now that I know something about the history and that this is a real person <laughs> and she was a nun and she was cutting edge and what kinds of work she was doing. Now I understand the main character of the rabbit hutch now and yeah. why she was inspired by her and why she researched her. Yeah. I probably had an advantage there because I have read some of Hildegard von Bingen's works and knew a little bit about her. So for me, it was like, oh, she loves Hildegard. I love Hildegard. It just felt like it was a piece of context that probably meant a lot to me, told me a lot about Blondine. And that was just kind of a, a missing puzzle piece for you. Yeah, exactly. But you are well-read. So it doesn't surprise me that you knew something about this woman. <laughs> <laughs> a thousand years ago. <laughs> My goodness. I love that Hildegard wrote these Gregorian chants. I actually listened to a recording of O Eterne Deus, and that is a composition of Hildegard's that is mentioned in the Rabbit Hutch. And I don't remember having ever having heard that work before, but it is absolutely beautiful. And I could, you know, I just searched for it online. I found a nice YouTube recording of it. So I really encourage people to look into this wonderful person's compositions. They are ethereal, beautiful. I thought, oh, I'm going to listen to this music. I'm going to have this music on the background when I write because it is really gorgeous. Love that. And as far as Gregorian chants go, do you remember that 
one of your best friends in high school, Becky, loved Gregorian chants. Yeah, I remember her talking about that. I didn't have any idea what she was talking about. <laughs> now you know. Now, well, now she was I know. probably listening to Hildegard of Bingen. Yeah. Now, I'm not totally under a rock. I did know something about chants and, you know, sure. I have no idea. How in the world would Becky even be exposed to this? Well, Becky was a music major in, in college. Yeah, but she was like a kid when she was saying this. <laughs> she was interested in these Gregorian chants. So, what? <laughs> You'll have to ask her. I guess we'll have to have her on our show at some point. <laughs> I guess so, to talk about Gregorian chants. <laughs> yeah, she was well read too, so I'm not surprised. Becky is very well read. Yeah. And it's not so unusual that someone starts forming an interest in something as a child that blossoms into what they major in in college also. Yeah. She played the piano. She played mm -hmm. instruments and she sang too. Mm -hmm. And she played trumpet when we were in high school. Yep. In the band. Yeah. Yeah. She could play a lot of instruments, actually. I think maybe she even played an organ in church. Really? Yeah. Wow. You know, as an adult, I think maybe she did. I'm not quite sure about that, but... It's very talented. Anywho, yeah, she's got some talent there. Well, stop by the front porch next time because we're going to review Lessons in Chemistry, written by Bonnie Garmus. Here's the thing, Nancy. I didn't tell you this. <gasps> But on my Kindle, <laughs> Kindle mentioned, Kindle I, need mentioned. Some, I need royalties. I'm telling you <laughs> on my Kindle, this book's advertisement came up constantly for <gasps> four months. No. Yes. This book. And I thought, what a cute cover. There's this little cute lady with these cat glasses. She's very stylish. This looks like my kind of book. Yes. And so when I was bringing up next month's book, I'm like, there's the lady with the cute cat glasses. <laughs> I want to read this. This is our book. So I am happy. I think I've read the first chapter or two. And I love it. So cute, right? <laughs> yeah, really nice. I like it. Okay. And I have already read this book. And uh -oh. I will tell you, I also loved it. And I, I loved it from the start as well. Yeah, so you yeah. are, you're going to adore this book. Here's the premise. It's set in the early 1960s. Elizabeth Zott's dream of being a chemist is put on hold when she finds herself pregnant, alone, and fired from her research lab. This book was number one on the New York Times bestseller list, and Apple Plus is going to release the book as a series in October with Brie Larson starring as Elizabeth Zott. Oh, interesting, Nance. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I like it. It seems like a good baby boomer book, and I am a baby boomer, so I fell in love with it right away. And you know, because I have said, I typically don't. I mean, as a general rule, I don't read like the jacket. I don't know what I'm reading. I just pour into it. Well, after like the first page or two, I'm like, what is this book about? And I started... <laughs> reading information about what the book was on. And I very, very rarely do that. But I love the whole premise of this book. So I'm excited to learn what happens to our heroine mm -hmm. and her life. 
great. I cannot wait then for you to finish reading it and then for us to talk about it. All right, Nancy. Well, thanks for listening. Our website is frontporchbookclub.com. And we will put all kinds of great notes from this week's episode on that website. So that's where you can go find them. Our episodes come out twice a month on the first and third Wednesday of every month. We'll see you next time, Nance. Looking forward to it. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Ha, ha, ha.